Friday. Welcome to Mad Hat Economics. I'm Jackie Stein, and I'm here with Professor David Just. Hello. And graduate <laughs> students Liz Bell. Hi. And Jakina Devnam. Hi. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Today we're talking about behavioral economics and paternalism, what that means for our society, how it's involved through government practice, and how behavioral economics can give us some light on that and help change some of our most irrational behaviors. So Great. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't know if I would use the term irrationality, but that's a te- separate conversation. Okay. It's a good debate about that. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> so I think we want to start out by talking about some work that David and I have been doing looking at the soda tax that was recently passed in Berkeley. So um, this tax was passed at the end of uh, 2015 to take... That's right, right? So yeah, it's under 2015. Yeah, yeah. 2015. Um, and it's it's recently um, taken effect. And so the way that this passed was it was voted into action. And the, the most uh, current findings that we have right now about the impact of the soda tax are that it's decreased consumption by about 20%. And this data is coming out of some household surveys that were done by um, public health scientists. Yeah. Yeah. So a whole bunch of, yeah. Public health groups. And it's, I mean, 20% is astounding, right? I forget the exact tax, but it's uh, it's something around 20% around yeah. there. Yeah. And yeah, and, and to get a 20% reduction in soda consumption, that just sounds amazing. Yeah. They've, they've, uh, they've found the panacea to eliminate soda consumption or right. reduce it. And, and at the same time, fund some other public health opportunities through the tax, right? That's right. And so I think there are two sort of issues that we want to highlight about this. The first thing is that Berkeley is really weird. So there are the people who (laughs) who voted and people who vote in general are very different than the population of people who are going to be impacted by a soda tax. So we know that voters are going to be older, they're going to be whiter, and the people who drink soda are going to sort of be the converse of that. So that's, that's one thing. We also know that Berkeley is not representative of the U.S. population. These people are... I've I've lived there. I can say that. That's true. (laughs) So I think David did his PhD there, so he knows firsthand what this is like. Uh, And so I think we want to be cautious about generalizing findings from a weird group of people voting in a weird tax. Uh, The second thing is maybe a methodological critique about the way that the survey has been done. So I think that when you're doing household surveys, you want to be very cautious because there's sort of a, a question about whose house can you go to? And are those people going to be representative of who's going to be, um, who's going to be affected by a tax? And are people going to report honestly to you if you ask them a question about how much soda are you drinking, particularly as it's becoming more of a sanctioned behavior? Yeah. And it's, I mean, with this tax, it was voted in by 75% of the population. That's, yeah, that, that by itself is pretty amazing. Um, and if, if you have that, there's, there's been this sort of public fervor that, uh, that soda's bad. And then you come around and you ask people, so how much soda are you drinking? That can definitely impact your answer. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But it, even so, I, 75% are voting this in. And these are presumably people who are, you know, recognize that soda is a problem. They're probably not the soda drinkers. Right. right? So if, if that's the case, you had a pretty low level of soda consumption beforehand, or at least we suspected you probably had a low level of soda consumption beforehand and 20% of almost nothing is, you know, really almost nothing. Right, exactly, (laughs) especially because maybe they're drinking other things in place of soda already, water, people tend to 
Yeah. 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 So I'm not have that option. Yeah. And I think when we when we looked at the the Nielsen Home Scan data, mm-hmm. which the good the advantage this has over this household survey data is that this is actual people reporting what they've consumed and the privacy of their own homes. And we find that the average level of consumption in Berkeley is uh, smaller by an order of magnitude than than it is in the United States. So it's much, much lower consumption. So do you think there's any evidence that this, like a tax episode, <laughs> <laughs> can we extract anything from this? Well, it's, I, you know, I, I don't think this says the soda tax isn't effective. That's, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, 20% is 20%, right. right? But it's it's been effective in a population that where I don't think we can take this lesson and really apply it everywhere. Ber- Berkeley, anybody who's lived there for very long knows, is extremely unique. Um, and I, I, what that means is if we want to try and reduce soda consumption in populations that look like Berkeley, this might be the best option. They 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 are probably more accepting of a soda tax and they respond to it in a way that uh, that seems seems to make it justified, right? How about in populations that are maybe the opposite or a little <laughs> bit farther away from Berkeley? What Are there any other evidence that maybe not a tax, but some other policy might nudge them to a better decision? Well, so, you know, there are other policies with, with respect to soda that, that could be effective. Um, and there are some that are actually being tried right now. If if, uh, if you look, I, th- I think it was uh, Pepsi just announced that over the next something like a, 10 years, they're trying to reduce the calories in their regular soda and, and introduce more options that are zero calorie as well. I, and I, I thought they were going to reduce it by 20 to 30% in, in the regular soda. So what is what is that? Well, they're, they're trying to shift the default. Right, they're trying to shift the default. We've, we've, uh, you know, our entire lives, it's been: Do you want the regular soda, the normal soda, or do you want the diet stuff? Right. And you, to choose the diet, you've got to admit to yourself: I'm a little bit different from everybody else. That's right. I'm, I'm, a, you know, fit in this niche. Well, they're trying to, over a long period of time, shift that norm and say. Well, no, everybody really should have been on a diet, right? We, we, we all should have been taking in fewer calories. Maybe they're not going to push it necessarily as far as some of the public health groups want them to go. But, uh, but that's an opportunity because if, if, if you can grab the regular and it has fewer calories, you're going to get fewer calories overall. The, the trick is you want to do that slowly because otherwise people are going to notice the difference in taste they're, you know, the, they're people who are going to, you know, react negatively to aspartame relative to sugar. People already don't like the corn syrup, right? right. <laughs> Is that kind of like what the Coke Zero's trying to do? So it, it's not supposed to taste different, but it's healthier. It's so, yeah, Coke Zero is not supposed to taste different. But I think the main thing they were doing with Coke Zero is they were trying to find a way to get men to That's accept right. zero-calorie right. soda, right? Because right. women were much more willing to say, yes, I want the diet. They want to identify with... Uh, being thin. Yeah, well, <laughs> being thin or... It's more socially or, acceptable for a woman mm-hmm. to identify with a diet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it's there's actually some social pressure to identify with that, whereas men, there's social pressure to say, I don't care about how many calories I'm taking in. I'd like to take in as as much as possible. And that diet label just really pushed them off. Uh, So, so it's, it's had a pretty big impact on, on the male market for soda. 
That's right. Yeah, and I think even noticing sort of the way social forces interact with this discussion is really interesting Mm -hmm. because I was listening this morning to an interview with Michael Pollan, and he was pointing out that there are six-ounce containers of yogurt that have more sugar than a full-size soda. Yeah. But you don't see people campaigning to restrict yogurt consumption in America, <laughs> right? Point. Yeah, which, I mean, maybe has to do with the Dairymen's Association of America or something like that. But I think the fact that we're focused on this particular product as sort of the social evil says something really interesting about... what well, it does, right? Because it, you, you even look at, at just beverages, and most of the things you're going to get out of a Starbucks are, are going to have more calories than, you know, a can of soda. Yeah. Right, and we don't have we don't have any public health movements targeting right. that, and I, right. I think it's, you know, we feel much more comfortable saying that's sort of low class food and it's not very good, so let's get rid of it. Right. Right. Yeah, they're they're shaming it soda, but not against whipped cream frosted <laughs> <laughs> frappuccinos with the chocolate drizzle. So yes, yeah, which yeah. it's like a dessert in one, and and then you have you have juice, you have yogurt, you have snack packs that sweetened we sweetened yeah. teas. There's so much more than just soda. There, you know, if you're drinking Gatorade all the time, it, it has tons of sugar in That's it. Right. So ha- yeah. Yeah. So is this kind of the start of, I guess, Pepsi's <laughs> trying to combat its shamed, the, the shamefulness it's received, but... That's right. And, and, and we've also seen you know, soda makers across the board introducing smaller sizes, mm-hmm. right? right? The miniature Cokes. And, and, and yeah. people are, are paying more for those. Well, mm-hmm. what, what is that doing, right? right. This, this is essentially a commitment mechanism. People are willing to pay to, to get less of it. So these paternalistic... Um, overarching things that, you know, impact our decisions, they don't necessarily need to be a public instituted thing. They can definitely be privately done and done effectively. So I think we've certainly seen that with the responsiveness of soda companies to what's been going on. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that's always going to be the best way to do it, Mm -hmm. but uh, there's some trade-offs, right? If if you're going to have, if the government's going to step in, and they're going to say, we're going to regulate this market in some way. We're going to try and push people. Then you end up with a, a trick where there's, you know, the consumer now is being told, you can't have exactly what you want. And they're going to be angry. They're going to push back, right? And the producer then is really benefited by stoking that anger and, and making the consumer feel like the government really overstepped. Right. And so they need to get out. Um, and, and so... In order for that to be something useful, the the goal of the policy really has to overcome a lot of I, I guess what uh, what our president might call headwinds, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, so that's a, that's a trick. I mean, you see this with with uh, you know, for example, the market for for drugs, illicit drugs, right? Uh, the government has stepped in and they've made a hard line. You can't have these things. And there's some real negatives there that go along with that. Not to say that drugs are the best thing in the world. They, right. they have real negatives with them, and you have to weigh those off. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there's, but there's a clear difference when we look at Colorado and their drug use and habits, or we even look at Amsterdam and a lot of their regulation of drugs and illegal things such as prostitution there. They've had regular, like regulatory forces can have a positive paternalistic impact while not restricting us as much as a ban or illegal, um, so and any comments on on yeah. that? Well, I, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not super familiar with the market for prostitution, so I don't know. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure, but I think I think that um, that the point that David brought up about what does it mean for the government to get involved. Right. So one of the ideas that we've been thinking about a lot is this idea of psychological reactants, and so there are ways that. Um, if you restrict someone's freedom, then they're going to be motivated to act out in in response to that. So one of the things that you pointed out with the illegal drugs is that maybe when people feel that they can't have drugs, they might act out and they might overconsume. They might be prompted to um, use more drugs. And I think that intuitively that's an idea that makes a lot of sense to us. And so there's a long body of work in psychology which is looking at what are those ways at which sort of this uh, reactance can be tweaked. So one of the things that's a consistent finding in the psychology literature is that the more authoritative the message is, the more people respond negatively to it. So that means that having government predict, interdict something is going to cause people to overconsume more than maybe just having sort of a private actor or a friend or, or that sort of thing. So I think that is a really key insight that behavioral economists and choice architects can use to say that, hey, maybe we want to use a light touch here. We want to say... What's the way we can change these regulations? What's the way we can sort of design these environments, but in a way that makes people feel less threatened? That's really interesting. I think it has a lot of implications for family use and disciplining your children and alcohol consumption. I think is a big thing where we see the restriction here in the United States, but then you go down to South America and they they consume alcohol regularly with their families. It's legal or you go to Europe and there's not as um, a you know, alcoholism is not as big there. There's not a lot of, you know, teenagers and college students going out to get drunk or wasted. But here you see a lot of indulgence and right. and then negative behaviors that come out from that. Yeah. So um, this is good for life skills and parenting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's a trick to try and find yeah. ways of, of curbing bad behaviors without inducing that reactance, yeah. right? And that, so talking about drugs or, you know, one example that's that's brought up very often is cigarettes, right? Mm -hmm. And cigarettes are a really interesting example because a whole bunch of different things happened all at once. Uh, we saw, you know, these sorts of bans in, in certain public spaces happen and, and giant raise in taxes. But we also saw just a huge increase in social pressure um, and, and the sort of stigma around smoking. And I, I, I actually wonder if that's not really sort of the big key there is because when it's the social pressure, you don't feel like there's just this one guy beating on you or the, the government, you know, making it so your life is miserable. It's, well, I, you know, if I really want to get in with this social group, yeah. I, I need to change the way I'm behaving or I need to avoid this thing to stay away from it, right? Yeah. So sh shaming can also have a, a really interesting <laughs> effect is that it's, and, and it's more extreme, it's shaming versus curbing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because I don't know. I think I think that with the cigarette thing, there's shaming, but there's also a change in what is sort of like the reference point and the status quo bias. So with smoking, you have the behavior of smoking, but you also have this whole like sort of behavioral ethos that goes with it. So you go outside and you smoke with your friends or, you know, like you see your parents smoke and that makes you more likely to smoke. And I think that by changing sort of the cultural ethos around smoking, then it makes your default a little bit different in a way that decreases smoking. Yeah, I mean, it, literally, you used to go to restaurants or other places, and, and it would be, Just you sit, you know, 
you sit down in sort of the normal section or you request the no smoking section, right? right. You, you would have to request this sort of odd grouping, uh, social norm uh, suggestion, uh, just the way soda yeah. is right now, right? Um, and that that's changed, right? You go to a restaurant and you sit anywhere. Um, now, there are still some states where they allow smoking, but it's it's not the norm it was before. That's right. It's highly restricted to outside. And now even in New York, there is restrictions on smoking outside. That's right. So <laughs> it's become more socially unacceptable to smoke and it's harder to find a spot to smoke as a result. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, you look at all of these things and every single one is sort of, these are public health issues, right? right. And we've been hammered with with information on the health problems these cause for, for generations now, right? I, it, we're not the first generation to think sugar is something bad for us. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and smoking, you know, we've known it was something bad for us at least for, for 50 years. But the information itself didn't really move us, right? It didn't really change us uh, yeah. the way we reacted to these things. It, it We didn't change until something else happened. Right. And I know that the Information is interesting because sometimes the government tries to use more information to paternalistically persuade consumers or people to behave in certain instances, such as when we sign contracts, we're required to have all the information there, um, provide our signature. So that's kind of their paternalistic nudge to knowing more about the topic. But in these other instances, you're saying that the information wasn't helping our behavior until yeah. it was dispersed from top down. Well, I think it has so. to do with the whole like sort of system one, system two mm-hmm. thing. So I think people can cognitively know something, but in many instances, the more powerful motivator is going to be sort of what is your, what's your impulse? What's your sort of default going to be? And so I think that for us as economists, this is a really valuable lesson because I think that, you know, we talk a lot about rationality and how people process things, but in a lot of cases, the most powerful ways of changing behavior are just changing default options. So we talk about things like organ donation. So the most effective way that we've increased organ donation in America has by by changing things from an opt-out to an opt-in. Opt in to an opt out. I'm sorry, the opposite. Yeah. yeah. One of those. <laughs> yeah, one of those things. Yeah, changing what the default option is. And that's had a huge impact, but that wasn't an educational treatment. That wasn't something that we sort of made people less irrational, right. use of air quotes here. Um, but it was something that really moved behavior. And that's because we said, okay, well, we know that people are going to be biased towards whatever the status quo is. So how can we use that to make a better outcome? And I think the numbers really show how drastic that is because there's something like 13% of people in America are organ donors currently. And then if you look at other countries that are similar, you look at Sweden, they have where they their default option is to don- donate their organs. It's ubiquitous. Yeah, everyone's within donating. America because it varies mm-hmm. by state. Mm-hmm. So if you look That's at right. states where it's opt out versus <laughs> opt in, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then you'll see that. Yeah. Now that's right. And the... the it's amazing how that that sort of social norm and and I guess status quo bias is is, is really something important. I, I've been doing some work with uh, with a, a graduate student looking at uh, at problems around open defecation in India, <laughs> and I you know around here, um, you know I talk to my my daughter and her friends and, and, uh, they will not go camping. And why don't they want to go camping? Well, they don't <laughs> want to have to use the bathroom out in the woods. Right. Cause it's, it's just, it's not, fun. it's disgusting. Yeah. It's, it's something that is, it's, you know, it's horrible in their mind, 
But here you've got a problem in India where for a long, long time they've been giving out public health information about open defecation, about the problems that it causes, and it hasn't been enough to actually change what people do. And so they've they've started a whole bunch of new programs now. And so some of these are, are just subsidizing, you know, yeah. public toilets and things like that hasn't really moved the needle. What they did find that did move the needle is having these roving bands of people who will find somebody openly defecating and then just making huge amounts of noise by like banging pans together and shaming them. Mm -hmm. And suddenly these people don't want to go back to, to, you know, defecate out outdoors um, with that possibility. Yeah, that, that's really interesting, honestly. <laughs> yeah. like, that's something, you know, we could maybe apply in the United States to some, I mean, we don't do that very often. And here's the opposite. We don't want to go outside. We want right. the privacy. We want the, the comfort of Thank the toilet goodness. seat and the toilet paper. Yeah. All yeah, the wonderful exactly. things that come with the toilet. So, um, but we look at driving and speeding, and that's a really big problem. Uh, we have all the information. We have students take driver's ed, um, showing them, you know, terrible tragedies that have happened from drunk driving, from speeding, uh, from texting on their phones, yet people still continue to do these really risky behaviors. Yeah, that's right. And we have the law cracking down on us. You know, New York does not allow you to use your phone while you're driving, but can you know, and from Florida, this was kind of an adjustment because I realized how much I use my phone when I drive, which is quite dangerous. Um, so there was an interesting study uh, down in Mexico. They shamed people who were speeding or, or not who were rolling at the stop signs. And they had oh, mimes. Okay. So it just roll through the stop signs. Okay. Yeah. And they had mimes who were by the, the, like the, the speeding it was the stop signs and the the speeding signs That's or the wonderful. speed limit signs and mimes, mimes and wow. it would like they would express sadness and or, or happiness like good yeah. jobs so it had that positive reinforcement aspect and and people actually they noticed a significant decrease in speeding in Mexico, which is yeah. really interesting. So I think it relates to the passage of seatbelt laws in mm -hmm. America. So one of the reactant studies found that after seatbelt laws were passed, seatbelt usage went down. So people were negatively responding to the passage of the seatbelt law. They handed out pamphlets and people still didn't increase their seatbelt usage. But over time, it's become a, a social norm. And you've got that beep thing in your car where it's like, if you don't plug it in, then you're going to have to listen to that annoying sound. Right. And I would argue that that's way more effective than telling you that you're going to go flying out of your car if you get in an accident because yeah. everyone believes that they're not going to get in an accident right there's so much overconfidence right. there right. everyone thinks that they're above the norm yeah, yeah. So, so mimes that's the answer yeah. mimes right? <laughs> i'm actually terrified of mimes i, I don't know if it'd work for me <laughs> you don't want to look at them i know i, I was, well <laughs> i was actually reading uh i think in england they have this setup where if you're speeding um your, your car passes a sensor and a happy face will come up if you're going the speed limit or below and a sad face will come up if you're speeding. So they found that that really did decrease speeding as well. So yeah, maybe we just similar. need happy faces and sad faces. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, if, if you really wanted to take that sort of public shaming a step beyond, right? Yeah. We, we already have cameras everywhere that are triggered when you're speeding or, or when you're, uh, you run through a stoplight. Have it immediately post to you to your Twitter feed or something yeah. like that, right? I don't know if that would <laughs> discourage people. Maybe. Depends on what it was you were doing. <laughs> yeah. 
And then it could be that influx of Twitter where it just becomes like all these traffic violations that are just, <laughs> people are getting pretty frustrated. <laughs> like, now, now there's a Twitter two with no traffic violations. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, that's a good equilibrium effect. Overall, we have a lot of different areas where behavioral nudges can be implemented to increase you know, good outcomes in decision making. So they run from smoking to organ donation to 401k plans. What, how does, what, what are the implications of this? What, what should we really get out of what we talked about today? Well, I think different people can pull different messages out of this. I, my, you know, my sort of takeaway from this is that there are trade-offs to each approach, right? So, um, we shouldn't always necessarily be running for the paternalistic, you know, we're, we're just going to force people to do what we think is best for them approach. But we also maybe shouldn't always just necessarily run and say, well, we'll just give them information and let them decide on their own. There, there are a whole bunch of other approaches that can be effective to various degrees and impact people's freedoms in, in different sorts of ways. And, and by impacting their freedoms in different ways, we can also adjust how much resistance there will be to it, how much people will actually, you know, care about the actual, you know, issue at hand in the end. So that to me is sort of the takeaway from it. Yeah. So I think that one of the things that's highlighted by the work of the Food and Brand Lab is that you need to think about two things when you're thinking about paternalism. The first is outcomes. So how is this going to change people's behaviors? And then the second thing is what's the way that you're doing it? So I think that the Food and Brand Lab explicitly tries to change children's food choices, but in a way that's going to help them preserve their choice sets and help them, the children to feel good about the choices that they're making. And so that would be kind of my big thing is that policymakers need to think about both of those things, not just about outcomes, but what are the ways? And is it really fair in a broad sense? So one of the things we highlighted with the Berkeley tax is that we have a case of maybe something that could be called the tyranny of the majority. So there's a, a large set of people who are imposing their views on a small set of consumers. And we can maybe characterize the same thing as happening with cigarette taxes, is there are a growing population of people who don't smoke who are voting for things that are impacting, impacting people who do smoke. And so I think that considering the rights of those minority groups is something that paternalists should really think about. Those are all very good, wise points. <laughs> I think we should think about tailoring and we should think about, you yeah. know, how people are feeling and having a positive effect. And um, and that's the point of all of these policies and measures. It's to impact in a positive way that achieves the goal. So, and clearly right now we don't have all the solutions. So, no. um, no, no, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and any further points you would, you would like to say, Liz? I think my biggest takeaway from this is the idea of psychological reactance. So when designing policies, we want to make sure that we're not designing them. So people look at the policy and then do the exact opposite, which would just, of course, totally ruin whatever we are trying to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's yeah. right. That's so great. I think that's really something to yeah, be careful of. Important. Yeah. And so we economists have a lot to learn from psychologists. Yes, we do. Absolutely. Thank you everyone for joining us today and we wish you a great weekend. This is Mad Hat Economics. See you next time. <laughs>